conference supported by the International Rescue Committee, the IRC. Now today we're going to be looking at a very important issue, East Africa food crisis breaking the cycle of drought, hunger and famine. A big welcome to our in-person audience. I can see lots of women in the room. That's always brilliant to see. So I hope you guys have lots and lots of questions because this is a fantastic panel. Um, and also for everyone who is joining online, for anyone, of course, who does want to put in a question, please put it into our Slido app and I'll be picking out your questions for later on in the programme. So never again, they said, over a quarter of a million people died in Somalia between 2010 and 2012 during one of the worst famines in recent history. In its aftermath, the international community promised much. They promised policies to tackle the root cause of hunger and drought so that this is a famine of this scale that would never happen again. But a decade on, a familiar and brutal reality awaits the people of Somalia. As the drought worsens, an even worse famine looms large and hundreds of thousands face starvation, with children aged below the age of five being extremely vulnerable at this point. Now, according to the UN, internal insecurity and insurgency, the ripple effects of the war in Ukraine, the climate crisis and the pandemic's economic fallout have all directly impacted Somalia. They say it needs about half a billion in aid alone, but will that come? Now, over in Bali, in Indonesia, the G20 have been meeting and expressed concern over an alarming increase of food insecurity. The EU has pledged an extra 210 million euros. Does that do enough? Well, one thing we can say is that help needs to come fast. The IRC are predicting an imminent famine in Somalia. But this is also a crisis that goes beyond one country, and that is, of course, the subject um, of today's debate. Now, as humanitarian organisations have vastly scaled up their response, the international community has perhaps gone a little bit into reverse. Oxfam, for example, says only 3% of the total $6 billion pledged under a 2022 UN humanitarian appeal for Ethiopia, Somalia and South Sudan has been funded to date. Now, aid agencies warned that waiting for a formal declaration of famine that could potentially galvanise the international community could be far late to save lives. So what can be done? Well, let's ask our experts. But first, we're going to have a keynote statement by Shashwat Sharaf. He's the Regional Emergency Director, East Africa at the IRC, who joins us remotely. Shashwat, please go ahead. I just would want to start by saying that during my travels in Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya over the last few months, there are two particular uh, conversations that really strike me, struck me and, and, and actually showcase uh, what's happening today. There was an IDP camp in Galmudug in Somalia and we were having conversations with the population there. When we were about to leave, there was a very old man who stood up and said, Do you know what hyenas are? And he said, we basically have been reduced to nothing but hyenas. We go out in evening in packs in search of food and scavenge for food. And this is no life that any human being should lead, should live. Because we've always lived with pride and dignity. We've been very proud pastoralists and have been able to survive for generations. But this is no way to live. And on another count, there was another young mother who said, 
that I've already lost two children because of malnutrition. And I have a third one who is also severely malnourished. And I've come here just to make sure that my third child can survive and can get the adequate treatment that is required. This, this to me sums up what the situation looks like today in East Africa amongst a lot of pastoral, agro-pastoral and farming communities impacted by drought. I would want to round it up by just putting forth some hard-hitting facts and numbers. The way we've seen the drought progress just between November 2021 and August 2022, less than 12 months, we've seen severely food insecure households in Somalia increase from 2.3 million to 7.8 million, in Ethiopia from 6.8 million to 8 million, and in Kenya from 1.4 million to 4.1 million. Today, we are talking about 7.4 million children who are acutely malnourished. And I think this is a cause for concern for everybody, all. And we're already talking about a forecast of below average fifth rainfall. We are already talking about near to complete depletion of livelihood assets for the impacted population and difficult to imagine. It's difficult completely to imagine how the population will recover and rebuild. So in the end, I would just want to say that res the resilience of individuals households and communities today is hanging by a thread. Thank you. Thank you, Shashwat. Um, those are some really sort of horrific stories and I'm sure lots of people that work in the field that you work in here almost daily. Um, if I could, a quick follow-up question. Um, with the scale of the crisis so huge and the needs being so massive, where do you even start? Can you sort of paint that picture for us? So the first bit is that despite the intrinsic uncertainty of the rainfall forecast, we know that there is a solid certainty about the urgent need for global support and solidarity to avert, to avert a famine. And I think that's, that's the key. But where do we start? I would say the, the, the 7.4 million children who are acutely malnourished need treatment today and not tomorrow. And I think that's where we start. We start by making sure that there is access to water for households so they don't have to abandon their houses and move into camps, into urban and peri-urban areas and live in camps today and continue to live for weeks and months just to make sure that they have humanitarian assistance, basic food, water, and shelter. Uh, in, in, in situations such as this. So my call is that we cannot and must not wait for a famine declaration and for any additional rainy seasons to fade. We just need to act today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ashwat. Okay, well, that was um, quite a key 
um, introductory statement. Um, and let me now introduce everyone to our panelists. We have Andrea Kulima, who's a director of Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Latin America and Pacific, and DG Eka at the European Commission. Welcome. I also need to point out that she does have a bad back. So if you do see her standing up and walking around, do not mind it. Um, as someone that also suffers from back issues, I completely have solidarity with her today. Um, we also have Maria Arena, MEP, Chair of the U European Parliament's Human Rights Subcommittee um, and member um, of the DPAP Committee, the European Parliament's Delegation for Relations with Pan-African Parliament. Welcome to you also, thank you for taking part. Um, joining us online, we have Fozia Mohammed Ali, who's the Operations Director at Gredo. Um, they're a local non-profit in Somalia. Um, there she is, welcome Fozia, thanks for joining us. Um, and then finally we have Harlem Dazir, who's a Senior Vice President of Europe for the IRC. Welcome to you also. Now, Eleanor Heavey was meant to be joining us, um, the Associate Director, Centre for Disaster Protection. She can no longer join us due to some personal reasons. So um, we do hope that, that you know, she is okay. Um, so welcome to everyone. Um, and as I was saying, this really is a panel of experts. So we really are pleased to have all of you participating today. Um, but first, let me allow all, ask all of you to introduce yourselves. Um, so Andrea, if I could ask you to go first, please. Okay, so uh, you mean to do an introductory statement or to introduce just ourselves? Introduce you, you can say okay. exactly whatever you'd like to say. All right, so, so I work in uh, DJ Echo now for more than 20 years. Uh, I'm the director for operations in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Asia and Latin America, uh, which is a very nice job, but also a very tough one because you're always asked to prioritize and to give to one or the other. And when you look worldwide, you see that the needs are actually increasing. Uh, and the disasters are increasing uh, throughout. Although we increase our funding, it never catches up uh, to the level we would like it to be. Okay, thank you. Um, MEP Maria Arena. So um, I'm chairing the Human Rights Subcommittee at the European Parliament. Uh, I'm also in the Environmental Committee, Environment and Health Committee. And I used to be in the INTA committee, so Trade International Trade Committee. And so it's really interesting to work on these different issues, environment. But because they're all interlinked, yeah. Yeah, they, they are totally interlinked. With, when we are talking about climate change, we are talking about human rights because we have seen that with this climate change, people are just deprived of their fundamental rights, uh, just the, the right to have access to water, for example, or access to live uh, in, their, in their own uh, region. So it's really something that is really linked. And when you are dealing with uh, international trade, you see also the way... We, as European, we are pushing for our own model in these countries, and sometimes it's not the model that we have to, to, to push for in this country. And so it's also something that you have to have in mind when we are dealing with this policy and to have a kind of co coherence in the policy that we are making with these countries uh, in the South. Thank you so much. Um, over to Fozia. Uh, thank you, um, Fozia Mohammed Ali, um, the Operations Director for Gredo. Uh, Gredo is a national uh, NGO that is uh, work is in different thematic areas, uh, healthy emergency response, food security, and education. Um, to that uh, is my introduction, uh, but I can share with my other uh, concern is and, and the reality on the ground later on. Thank you. Ms. Alan 
Vice President Europe of uh, the IRC. We are working with our colleagues in uh, 40 countries in the world, supporting them, uh, doing fundraising, policy and advocacy in Europe. We also have um, different offices uh, and, and programs in Europe to welcome uh, refugees um, uh, in Greece, uh, now inside Ukraine, also in Poland, in Moldova, and also since uh, 2015 programs to uh, support the integration of refugees in Germany and more recently also in the UK. Thank you so much. Okay, well, let's open up the debate then. Um, Harlem, I'm going to touch upon what uh, Shashwat was talking about there, his travels in Somalia, where he was saying uh, people are basically reduced to hyenas, 7.4 acutely malnourished. Um, when we, you know, we're, when we're hearing all of these, you know, really horrific things, these horrific stories and, you know, people lacking um, their dignity, what would you say is the root cause of the failure to act when it comes to East Africa? This is a yeah. question for me. So, first, Mariam, first, I want to say that I'm very happy that we, we can, uh, the IRC, uh, co-organize this event with, with your active. Um, I was uh, in, in the region uh, a few days ago. I was uh, visiting uh, Somalia. I was in Mogadishu and uh, in, in Baidoa. Uh, and and, and Shveshvat uh, gave very uh, direct testimony of what is happening uh, in Ethiopia, in part of Kenya, and also in Somalia where he traveled. And, and we will hear also our colleague uh, Fauzia. Um, you have a combination now of climate change with four or five consecutive droughts of conflict and also of uh, some consequences of the war in Ukraine with increases in food price, in uh, medicines price and so on. And, and so you have uh, millions of people on the move. Uh, in uh, Baidoa, where I was, there is now roughly one million internally displaced people. Uh, still arriving to the city, which was a city of 250,000 people. And you have kilometers of makeshift tents, you know, in places where there is no water, there is no electricity. So the first thing is that there was a lot of uh, warning, early warning. This is a, 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 a crisis which could have been anticipated uh, because uh, we saw the succession of these droughts, which are one of the consequences of climate change. Uh, for which uh, this population in this country have almost no responsibility. I mean, uh, the, the carbon emissions of this country are nothing, but they are paying the heavy price. And I will first underline the fact that, of course, we need urgent funding and that we need action not to wait for a declaration of famine. Because uh, as it was said, uh, as you remind, last time when the declaration of famine was made in 2011, there was already 250,000 people who have died. So we need now to mobilize much more funds. And I will say that the war in Ukraine should not be an excuse, especially in Europe, for saying that we cannot do more. It should be exactly the contrary. Because, and, and that was, by the way, the view which has been taken by the US Congress so far, to consider that as the situation is degrading even more in East Africa and in some other part of Africa, like Sahel, where we have been uh, both traveling a few weeks ago, there should be, on the contrary, a very strong and immediate mobilization for the region. So the causes are multiple. Uh, they are mainly the combination of conflict and climate change, but the answer should be immediate and should be much more higher than it is now, especially in Europe. 
Well, let me ask you maybe perhaps a follow-up question. Perhaps the other panellists can um, interject as well. Um, you mentioned the war in Ukraine and obviously the galvanising. We've seen the world come to Ukraine's aid as it should. Um, but has the war in Ukraine also shown, for, particularly for areas like East Africa, has it shown that it matters who you are rather than the scale of what you need? Well, the scale of the humanitarian need to support Ukrainians are huge. That's absolutely clear. And we are entering in winter and we see the devastating uh, attacks against civilian infrastructure, electricity, power plant and so on. Uh, so I think it's not a matter of competition, but rather what we are ready and capable to do for supporting the Ukrainian population with the need of this support. We should also be able to do it for other population where the crisis were existing before and has not at all disappeared by miracle because of the war in Ukraine. On the contrary, because as you know, of uh, the effect on all prices, food prices, energy prices, uh, access. Uh, so it's a first, it's a question of humanity. It's a question of moral. I think Shreshwat was right to say that the departure point must be the fact that there is 7.2 million or 4 million children who are in situation of acute malnutrition. By the way, he often also raised the point that, you know, we have classification, and like we say, it IPC 3 is just before famine. It's IPC 4 or 5, which is considered famine. But IPC 3 means that it's millions of people who are already food insecure, who are already suffering for hunger. I've, I've been seeing uh, in our clinics in, in Somalia the increase of uh, under five children with acute malnutrition syndrome. And already in, in life, I mean danger. So I think that whatever uh, the moral uh, reason we have absolutely to mobilize more, but it's also an issue, I mean, of security for the future of this continent, of Africa, of this part of Africa, and for the future of all of us. Andre, would you like to follow up? I mean, also, just to come to it, um, given the swell of support that, of course, um, the EU has shown for Ukraine, it doesn't mean that um, the EU is limited to act elsewhere, and in fact, the EU has upped its support, hasn't it, recently? Yes, that's, that's actually the point I wanted to make. Um, the Ukraine was, what, 25th of February. I myself led a mission of eight donors to Somalia on the 8th of March because we could see, you know, the writing was on the wall when it came to the fourth failed uh, rainy season, and we decided we had to act before the, the, the confirmation that that rainy season would, would fail. Uh, the European uh, Commission, thanks to the support of the European Parliament, already mobilized funding in December 2021, additional funding, in order to respond to the upcoming 22 situation. I, th I don't think we have failed to act. I think there has been a collective failure to act early enough. And that had nothing to do with Ukraine because Ukraine was not course, yet, yeah. was not yet uh, there. If I look at the, at the, at the figures, uh, in 2022, the EU has mobilized 920 million for humanitarian food assistance to be spent primarily in vulnerable countries. This is 60% more than last year. This is 80% more than in 2020. So there hasn't indeed been a, a particular effort given to Ukraine, but that has not been in 2022 to the detriment 
of other crises. And that's largely thanks to the European Parliament, largely thanks to mobilization of you know, decommitted funds of European Development Fund that were re, re, uh, re, uh, re, you know, reused, uh, although they were supposed to go back to the member states' uh, uh, budgets and so on. We have left no st stone unturned when it comes to the response in the Horn uh, as well as elsewhere. Nonetheless, despite this effort, what do we see? We're not where we should be. Mm. We could probably be worse, but we're definitely not in a nice place. And why are we not in a nice place? I think various elements to that. First is, this is not an emergency uh, man-made uh, conflict like, like, uh, like Ukraine. This is not something unforeseeable. Uh, this is something that has been building up for years. This is something which is related to climate change. Uh, to a large extent. We call it food security, but it's not really a food security root problem. It's a water problem initially, uh, more than anything. And you can survive three weeks without food, but you can only survive three days without, without, uh, without water. Um, this is a governance question that has an impact on it. This is also a security question. Let's not forget where Somalia is in yes. terms of conflict. I was uh, as I said, in March, in, in Baidoa, actually, and in Kismayo. And in Kismayo, in the hospital, they were starting to have the first cases of measles uh, coming from the IDPs. Uh, the age of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of the uh, patients was up to 15 years old. What does that mean? That means that there were kids up to 15 years old who had not been vaccinated for measles. Gosh, yeah. Why were not they vaccinated? Not because of the drought. They were not vaccinated because they were living in areas uh, under al-Shabaab control where the presence of the government, the capacity to provide services and so on, is not there. So it are, these are complex issues which we will, to be honest, I think we will always fail to act if we do not target and address the root uh, causes. If we don't look at it from a development uh, perspective, from a governance perspective and so on. I was shocked when I was in, in, in March to hear how much 200 liters of water cost. 200 liters of water brought by water trucking, not in very clean conditions, so the water is already arriving, not exactly very potable. $18 for 200 liters. I immediately did a quick calculation compared to how much I pay here in Brussels for clean water coming directly to the tap of the house. Uh, the Somali family was paying three times more. Gosh, really? And I was paying here and, in Brussels. And you were paying here. And, 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 and you know, normally you're, you're, the cost of your water should follow the income that uh, you have and the, and the standard living, uh, of living in the country. So these are really root uh, issues that need to be, uh, to be tackled. Now, from a humanitarian point of view in terms of response, we could have done better. I think the collective element is that we could have done better. And the objective of that mission that we did in, 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 uh, in March last year with a number of donors was to alert on the situation, was also to alert the humanitarian uh, responders also to do better in the way they were, uh, they were, uh, they were operating, to raise the alarm uh, bell earlier and so on. Commissioner Lenarchich organized in April last year two significant events, fundraising events. Uh, one was on the Horn and one was on the Sahel. And in both events, brought bringing in also the development aspect uh, because a development response has to be brought in. Now, you might tell me, but development takes very long to, to, to respond and so on. 
Uh, however, in Somalia this time, one of the mitigating elements for the response has been that based on the lessons learned from 2011 and based on 2017, there are development programs which address, for example, safety nets, which provide cash transfers uh, to people who are below a certain uh, level of poverty. We could actually do the nexus and link up with those existing, uh, existing programs whilst new programs are being put in place. And so, MEP Maria Arena, what would you like the EU to do more? How can it scale up? I think it's really important what we have said, because um, when we have this kind of emergency crisis, uh, we always think about humanitarian help, and it is the first answer that we have to have. So it is solidarity in a very short term, and we have to do more. And I totally agree, and I think that Europe has done the best that they can do uh, on this. It's possible to do more, uh, but, but I think that we are, we are there, and we are helping people at the first, um, first answer for emergency. But if the EU has done the best that it can do, you also say it needs to do more, so it hasn't done the best that it can Ex do. Exactly, uh, because it is on the middle and the long term, uh, and I think that it's... I, I spoke about coherence of, uh, um, of our action. Uh, six years ago, I think it's a little bit more than six years ago, I was in the uh, trade uh, committee and I was the only one in the European uh, trade committee to oppose us on, on this trade agreement with Kenya. And uh, some people told me, why are you against this trade agreement with Kenya? And my answer was, we are just pushing this country to uh, make exactly the same thing that we are doing, but not with the same resources. For example, uh, having uh, this uh, flower industry in the Kenya. It's not necessary to invest in flower industry when you know that your people are just dying because they don't have access to water. And to have flower industry, you are just taking the water of these people that it's needed for them to live in their country just to have flowers. They are not eating flowers. Not at all. They are selling flowers to our countries here in Europe, and the people that are receiving this money are not the people. They are the elite of the country, and they are not redistributing this money uh, for the rest. It is a question of governance. And if there is a problem of governance, we as Europeans, we don't have to push for this kind of model. What we have to push for is for an endogène model uh, with People, uh, I don't want to speak about uh, secu uh, food security, but I want to speak about food sovereignty. This is the first thing that we have to, uh, to have in this country. Of course, if there is not food sovereignty, we can help to have a, a network of food sovereignty with other foreigners countries. But the first thing that we have to do is not to push them to a producing sector of agriculture that is not feeding their people. And um, unfortunately, Europe, we are not really coherent on this because in the one hand, we are supporting development projects and it's really important to do so. And in the other hand, we are supporting business projects that are totally uh, controversial with these development projects. And so, what I'm asking for and what I say that we are not doing our best is having this coherence model saying that the first thing that we have to do is, of course, humanitarian help, but the second thing is to give the opportunity to this country to be really self, um, um, 
sovereign on their agricultural product uh, in, in this country. With the climate change also, and I'm really interested in what, what is happening in the COP27, uh, loss and damages is really important mm. also because it's a kind of solidarity that we have to do because we know that we are not changing this uh, uh, um, uh, climate change for this country. It's too late, unfortunately. So what we have to do is to see where it is still possible to live because in some place of this country it is no more possible to live in. And so where it is possible to live and how it is possible to help this population to live in other places of the country and help the government to do so, to have this transition. And in this, uh, we are not in the, in, in the good way. Uh, for example, we are thinking for the moment at the European level how it is possible to guarantee that we will have batteries and access to um, uh, raw materials in these countries. Mm. We are not think about, uh, thinking about how they can live. <laughs> True. We are thinking about how we can live with their materials. And it is another cycle that we are putting. So the people are secondary. Exactly. And it is another cycle that we are putting as Europeans, saying how it is possible to have these resources without protecting these people. And having these resources will use water. <laughs> Because if we need lithium, if we need raw material, it will need water for us, not for them. So we are always re in, in the same way of, of thinking. And I think that we have to change this way of thinking when we are dealing with Africa, but not only with Africa, with other countries. Because if we are not doing like this, we will be in urgency, emergency crisis, years after years and after years, and we will put more money on this, and it will never be enough. Never be well, enough. I think, I think that's an important point that you raise um, about having that, you know, international partners. Um, first of all, they don't necessarily see um, Africa as a partner. I know the EU has recently changed, in recent years, changed its language. Um, but we can say the international community have taken a lot um, from the continent. Um, Fozia, if I could bring you in, um, do you believe, you've heard a lot from, from the different panellists, but do you believe that the international community really wants to help people have their dignity, have their basic rights, access to water? Uh, I think the intention is there but sometimes it's too little too late uh we are talking about the 50 failed season and people here they live on farming livestock and uh some of them on fishery which is the only sector that is not well infested but could survive in such uh, climate-affected uh, issues that had come. Uh, the EU has pledged uh, and, and donated to some extent, but that would have been uh, helpful only like if 2022 we had enough rain. And that uh, 60 million would have helped you know, people to recover. But we are talking about after that, another two seasons that had failed, moms and, and her children walking 200 kilometers so that they don't diminish all of them in one locality, so that they can go 
where they think that they, they can get support. And unfortunately, what we are seeing on the ground in Baidawa, which uh, my colleague uh, IRC had visited and has seen on his own eyes, that this overcrowded uh, makeshift, which is not even, you know, a natural, you know, makeshift, it is like something that doesn't help them with the sun or the, or the cold. And sometimes the, the data we have, it's, it is not talking on the reality in, on the ground. We have malnutrition children that some of them, when they visit on our centers, the next visit is some of them, we don't see them because they already died. And it's, it's unfortunate children under five that had uh, impacted highly. And what we see in Somalia and also in the East Africa is very frequently that it has become uh, a yearly basis now, the drought and, and other, other, other incidents that happen. So in Somalia and East Africa, especially the drought, the COVID, the war in Ukraine that has also impacted, you know, the food chain, it, it has put them in, in a, in a situation where people cannot afford, we are talking about people who make less than a dollar a day, a family of five to six, seven, that, you know, when the father or the mother comes to try to make a living and they get $1 or less and with the high skyrocketing of, of living expense, it's, it's hard for them. And it's also hard to face your, your child when you know it's angry and you can't feed them. It's it, it affects their bride, it affects you know their their mentally and 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 also with, with these healthy issues that come because of poor nutrition. So that is uh, basically what is on, on happening on the ground. But more can be done, and the sooner we we, we respond, the better. We are on the front line, we see on day to day, we go try to reach hard to reach areas where access is, is close to impossible. However, when we go there, we don't have you know enough of what the people are need in need. So sometimes it's, it's even hard with, with going with the criteria who to select and who not to select to support them. Because uh, to the situations we see there, everybody who's there is in need. But we have to, you know, we have to do selection and, and say who's on a priority, which is unfortunate and it breaks our hearts to you. So, so much more needs to be done to meet um, all of these needs. Um, Fozzie, I don't know if you um, were watching uh, the news today. I mean, obviously the G20 are meeting um, in Bali and they've made latest pledges saying that they will be focused on food security. Um, for you, for you on the ground, um, do you think that the G20 can be effective in countries like Somalia? Or is it too cynical to say that perhaps this is just talk, especially given that one of the G20 members is Russia, a country that their invasion of Ukraine has caused a lot of the food, well, the current food scarcity that we are seeing today? I think it's something that can be done uh, because as we know, Somalia and other, other the the countries in the Horn, they contribute less than 3.5, especially Somalia. We could say we even contribute less than 1% of the climate change. And yet we are being affected mostly. 
we have you know people who have lost more than 70% of their livestock and that was the main uh, sources of, of income for people to live on we have families who have now abandoned their farming because of the of the effect of 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 the drought recurrent drought and also here we we have seen donor fatigue because there wasn't you know a strategy to address you know people who are more affected the climate change but i'm i'm, I'm happy that now the discussion is there and some some actions hopefully will be taken and it's not just a talk of the talk but uh, actions will follow so that you know we can't change what has happened but we can uh, mitigate you know the impact and and that's one way that people can take responsibility of of their actions and at least uh, stand with with other people who don't have economically are not viable to to survive through uh this climate uh change so Fozio though talks about those two um horrible words um donor fatigue um harlem what can a G20 statement really do to galvanize aid and support? Well, I've seen that the European Commission has announced a new uh, fund of 210 million mm. uh, euros for 15 countries most affected by a food crisis. And this is uh, in top of the 8 billion uh, special fund for 2020 to 2024. Uh, so I think this moment of uh, gathering of the leaders of the, the more important economy are very important to, to, to try to accelerate uh, the, the, the mobilization of support. Um, I, I agree that the European Commission and the Parliament have, do, have done their best, but when I look at the cuts in some member states or other European countries, even no more member of the European Union, in their mm. aid uh, budget, I, I mean, we are uh, facing a problem yes. and uh, uh, there is sometimes politics in it there is new priorities because of the economic and social crisis in Europe because of the increase in energy prices uh, we have seen already that kind of attitude during the COVID and, and it has had a, a very strong impact on, on public opinion in African countries and, and on the political uh, and geopolitical uh, reaction to the war in Ukraine. I mean, people during uh, the first phase of vaccination have seen that we, we keep the vaccine for us. We did not share uh, really the, the, the vaccine. So I think that now we have uh, the, the COP27 at Charm and Share, we have the J20, uh, we have uh, all uh, the world leaders meeting uh, to, to deal with uh, the new uh, economic and, and, uh, uh, and energy world situation, but we should look also at the famine situation. And that's why we are organizing uh, this alert, that's why we want to highlight the situation in the, in the Horn of Africa. There is people who are at the verge of famine. In, in fact, probably, I mean, there will be maybe in the next weeks a declaration of famine, but it's already the situation for a lot of people. And so there is a need to, to act urgently. Then we also have to, to act on on more structural and long-term response. It, it, can, is, it can be related to, to economic model. It is also about the, the way to, to ensure the access to scarce resources, the water, the, the, the part of the land which can be cultivated, which can be used for uh, agriculture and pastoral uh, reason. A lot of the 
conflicts in Sahel, in the Horn of Africa, are increased by climate change because of this scarce uh, access to, to, to these rare resources. There is also, and I suppose that uh, Fosia could speak about it, in Mogadishu, like in Baidoa and other places, now a urban crisis in many of these uh, countries. It's a huge change. I mean, people who are living with a very high level of dignity from rural and agriculture activities, now they are in urban places. Uh, we hope and we can hope that a lot of them could return to rural activities, but some will remain in cities which are not uh, constructed at all for, for welcoming them so far. So there's a lot of structural, uh, of, of course, uh, things to be looked at. And as uh, the, the Charmel Share COP27 is ongoing, there was this announcement, since the, the COP in, in Paris, that uh, 100 billion uh, dollars will be dedicated uh, to adaptation and mitigation and so on. But I mean, most of it should be concentrated to the more fragile and more exposed country. And, and it's not the case, very far from this uh, now. And at least half of it could be dedicated to this country, which are now the most affected because of the drought and, 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 and the floods and the direct impact of climate change on the life of people. And you also brought up, um, you were also speaking about climate change um, a bit early as well. So, um, you know, I think it was the Prime Minister of Barbados who was scathing at COP and who said that essentially, you know, um, poor countries have been exploited um, and he warned of a, you know, a billion climate refugees. So what sort of help can come um, from the leaders at COP, do you think? It's, it's, really, it's really difficult because I, I was just thinking, hearing from, from everybody, and I, I was just thinking, uh, we are asking for more to uh, different states uh, to have more solidarity. And what you said, Ahlem, is we are asking countries where they are facing um, uh, different crises, energy crises, for example, here in Europe, and we have to tackle the price of energy for poor people also here. And we are asking this country to be more solid, have more solidarity for the southern countries. And I say, um, what about companies? <laughs> um, that is an interesting point. The, 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 the principle of pollueur-payeur. Uh, we have companies that are responsible for what they have done on the climate change. What are we asking to them for solidarity? I was uh, one month ago in Uganda. Uh, and I met with uh, Mr. Uh, the, 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 the Total Energy Company. And um, they are here, and it is not because they are French, but uh, I, can, I can take any, for example, Italian one. So, um, so uh, they are here in Europe making a lot of money on this energy crisis. And they don't want to pay their taxes on this. That is definitely a concern for a lot of people. And they are there responsible for land grabbing because people there were there living with their own uh, territories and with their own agriculture they just are away of their land because of a pipeline that will use fossil fuel for exports and this total is making a lot of money there also and who is paying for people in Europe that have no money for energy, and people in Africa that have no money to eat, they are states. 
Andrea, how so do you hold, it's really you something that these, we have to, we really have to work on this. It's really important to make these companies pay for the damages more it's, than what they are doing for the moment. And really to prevent these companies to do the damages that they are doing in these countries. And this is the best way of having in the long term, in the long term, a solution for these countries. Because if we are not doing this, we will pay the bill and they will never pay the bill that are causing here and there. So for me, the one that we, we have to do and we have to make them pay the bill is these companies. But it's, it's more of a national competence rather than EU competence. No. It's for national countries to tax these um, energy giants, surely. I want to build on this because it's always also from, from crisis that uh, the EU also has advanced as a project. Mm. So, so I think it's, it's very interesting what, what Maria says. I want to come back to the issue of who's paying. And, and I'm going to disagree with, with, with my friend Harlem on what he says on, on, on COVID. Uh, the EU is at the beginning of the COVID crisis when vaccinations were there, the EU, was, EU countries were the ones sharing most vaccines. Not, not I can think of one country that wasn't. Not as EU and the yeah, EU yeah, member yeah. states uh, at the time were sharing uh, part of their contracts and that was the whole effort that was there. We're very good at, get, at being bashed. I mean, that's something the EU is very good at, at being bashed. Uh, throughout on this. I mean, I have here the Somalia overview, uh, um, humanitarian funding overview. Um, who do we have on the contributors to uh, 2022 Somalia HRP? On the top, definitely the US. They're the biggest donor when it comes to, to humanitarian assistance. Then we have uh, the U European Commission. Then we have UK, then Serbs, then Germany, Somalia itself, uh, Sweden, Canada, Japan, Netherlands, uh, Norway, Denmark, Ireland, Finland, Switzerland, France, New Zealand, Korea, Turkey at 0 0.2 uh, million US dollars. That's the lowest level that is captured. Where are the countries who are making money out of the increased energy prices? Where are the economies, uh, the big emerging economies uh, in this? Who are the countries who are reaching the 0 0.7? And indeed, member states, some member states will reduce their contribution to humanitarian aid and to development assistance, notably those who are at the 0 0.7 because they have an economic recession and therefore, in absolute terms, they have less money to dispatch around. But we have a structural problem in the humanitarian world. I don't want to speak about the development by one, but in the humanitarian world of a donor base which is far, far too small in terms of public, uh, in terms of public donors. And the way the world is going, you know, despite increasing fund, despite the generosity of the European Parliament in increasing, in increasing our humanitarian funding, it just ain't going to be enough if there's more people who don't, who don't chip in. Harlan, would you like to add your thoughts to that one about the donor base being too small then? And no, how I, you can I agree. And if it? you look at uh, uh, the donor and, and the aid budget uh, in general, including development budget in, in, the, in the EU, uh, you have uh, very few member states who, who, who respect more or less 0.7. Very few really respect it. Uh, and uh, a, a lot of others don't do any, any effort. Hopefully there is the EU budget as such. But I mean, each member state is supposed to, uh, uh, at, at minimum, respect its, um, its target of 0.7. Somewhere even above, and now are speaking about reducing it, which is a, which is a pity. 
uh, again, because I don't think that the, the crisis uh, in, um, in Ukraine justified to diminish international aid. Uh, regarding the vaccine, uh, I, I mean, again, it's not a critique against you or against the, the, the European Union, but I mean, we, we have had a strong delay between uh, the organization yeah, in, exactly. in the Western You can't perhaps point fingers, and, but it did happen, yeah. It's in the global it's south an image question largely i think in 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 in, uh, in in the media of the countries i work on and in the media in general there is a a, a very nar a narrative which is going on now which can be refuted by facts when it comes to for example this issue of has there been less funding for humanitarian assistance because of ukraine in africa or elsewhere it's not true yet still the story is not necessarily uh, heard or necessarily told. So whether it's because of disinformation or other issues or because we haven't been very good at, at, at uh, saying what we do uh, collectively over the past years, you know, I don't know what the, the reason is. You might know, you're a journalist, so you should know about that. <laughs> well, let's bring in Fosia then. Um, Fosia, you've been hearing what the panellists um, in the room in Brussels have been talking about and the respect of 0 0.7. What's, what's been your sort of um, thoughts as to what you've heard um, the panellists talk about? Uh, I think it, the climate justice is coming out, whether it's being a companies who are responsible or, or the government to governments on each country that tries to to get their fair share of, of responding to the climate change. Maybe the governments in EU EU needs to you know take accountable for for these companies that has uh, contributed. Uh, to that, but in general, right now, what we are asking is that an immediate, an immediate response, with with reflects on the magnitude of the crisis, and also a development that follows, so that people can be, you know, cautioned on any other shocks that comes in there is a uh, lack or not enough uh, water resources like the, the the this one million id becomes that you have seen they live on, on a small city that had already had debilitating uh, water resources and now with all this population it gets to a point that some of the days there are no water in in Baidawa, which hosts did he huge 1 million, close to 1 million uh, IDBs. So water infrastructure investment is important. Uh, investments on innovative way to curb and mitigate the, the climate change uh, that also includes smart farming and, and other agricultural investments is, is important. We also need to look also how will people recover health and nutrition Protection, which we are we are talking about, that much people who are in a overcrowded uh, places where they have been uprooted from their uh, homes, where they in you know, where they have pride and protection, and then they come to uh, these crowded uh, IDB places, which doesn't have walls to protect them, and they are not in their clans and families to protect them. So a protection issue is also there that needs to be addressed. And also 
peace and good governance is 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 something needs to be looked at you know some of those uh impacts could it be minimized if there was a good governance structures that are there you know people could have predicted you know what is going to be the situation in the coming uh months if there is a structure in, in place in those uh, areas so a good governance and this building is also another way that we cannot uh, overlook otherwise we are going to be addressing a cycle of you know of crisis to you thank you Fosia. um so just just to pick up on Fosia's last point about um peace and good governance um how can you sort of um perhaps andre this is a question for you how difficult is it to get involved to provide that much needed humanitarian support when you have these countries the realities on the ground in these countries where you have armed conflict how hard is it then for the EU aid agencies, everyone, just to get involved and to actually not only give give people the help that they need, but also give yourselves the security as you go around providing that aid as well. It's difficult, but it's possible. I think that's that's uh, that would summarise it. It makes it more costly as interventions. Uh, you have to manage the risk which is involved in those interventions. But humanitarian aid is unconditional, and humanitarian aid is provided through certain channels which are trusted, which are. Uh, the UN, uh, the Red Cross movement, international NGOs and their local partners. And I would really like to insist on the importance of the role that local NGOs play, uh, play into this uh, because humanitarian aid has to provide it regardless of the, political, of the political aspects. It makes it more difficult. It makes it less sustainable because we've heard Fawzia, you know, water in, in, in Baidoa, humanitarians can do small type of forage to get a bit of water, support water trucking uh, and so on. But they're not going to be able to do big, big investments uh, which are needed in order to maybe desalinate water or do other things that are needed in a, in, a, in, a, in a place like Somalia. I mean, it's not like you have multitudes of rivers. We do our little bit on that. I mean, we are funding now since two years, two partners to do the river management of two main rivers. So at least those rivers don't flood because that was also the thing. The irony of it is that you have a drought situation, but then when you have drought, you have flash floods. And when you have flash floods, you have also people who are dying because of the floods, which is, you know, I guess it's the worst curse uh, that you can have in, in a situation like this. So, so those little elements can be done, but it's really the sustainability and the capacity to address the root causes when you don't have the governance, when you don't have a, a, a stable structural situation, where you don't have the energies of the governments which are focused on addressing the drought, but rather focused on, in the case of Somalia, uh, fighting, uh, fighting al-Shabaab or, 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 or other things. You know, it's very difficult to have, to, to have an exit out of, of, uh, of a crisis response. To limit the, the level of response you have to, uh, to do, uh, because you don't have the same level of suffering, and to address things uh, early. One thing that struck me at, at a panel at the European Parliament a few months ago uh, was uh, an NGO colleague from Somalia who was, who was talking and who said that, uh, unfortunately, the situation was, had gotten so bad that they had to stop supporting the hungry in order to save the starving. Uh, which yeah. means that you end up in, a, in an ethical choice as to the resources you have, that if you want to do what makes sense, which is to act early, anticipatory, address those people who are in IPC3, who are in crisis situation, rather than address those who are at the brink of famine, then you're making it as an ethical choice, which is a very difficult one. But you know that if you only focus on the most acute needs, mm. then you're going to allow the situation to deteriorate. 
And that's what the scarcity of resources uh, leads in terms of, of, of difficult choices for the And our conversation has sort of gone full circle now back to this idea of, of giving people their dignity. Um, so if we're not just constantly just, you know, papering over the cracks, um, responding to the immediate needs, where should the EU be putting its long-term planning into? How do, you, how do you even do that? Where do you start? Or how is the EU doing it? So I think development is important. So we have to reach more money for development, not only at the EU level, but also to the member state level. So this, um, this um, target of uh, 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 0.7 must be, uh, must be the target for each member state. So we have to push for, for it. Uh, you know, when, when we are speaking about um, the target of having more money to the NATO, <laughs> it's easy. Uh, when we are speaking about ta the target of money for development is less, uh, is more difficult. So I think we have to push for it at the uh, level of member states to have more money for development aid. Because as we said, the more we are dealing this issue in the emergency, the less sustainable it is and the more expensive it is. So uh, it is also a question of efficiency to be more at the beginning of the, uh, of the situation and having this uh, development project. And also because when we are in the political and development project, we are dealing with bottom-up um, uh, uh, answer. And it's important to work with people living in these countries uh, and not only having this uh, uh, coming from uh, the, the, the government of these countries, we have to to, to work with people living in these different areas. And we know that sometimes it's difficult even for government to work with these remote areas. Uh, the, the, when, when we are dealing with the delegation, European delegation, we see that a lot of projects are in the capital and less in the remote areas. So for me, it's really important to work with the communities living in difficulties and to understand if it's possible to continue to live in these areas and having this transition plan uh, to perhaps remove po population from uh, a region where it is no more possible to live and give opportunity. We spoke about, for example, the fishery. Uh, it is also something on which we have to work on uh, because we have, for example, fishery agreement with countries. Uh, and so we can push at the European level to have less um, uh, fisher, European fisheries in this uh, 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 water and give more opportunity for small fisheries in these countries. And these are the kind of projects that we have to balance at the European level, not being selfish when we are de dealing with these different issues. And sometimes we are uh, selfish. I want to go to questions. Oh, Holland, do you want to say something? Or no. just <laughs> okay, you're just touching your nose. Uh, no worries. Um, I want to go to questions because we have about 15 minutes left. And given what you were just talking about, um, we have a question from Peter Barakzak who says, why haven't local farmers been assisted enough to develop resilient food systems? Yeah, but, yeah just because we are just reproducing the uh, agriculture uh, system that we have at the European level, and we want other countries to be in the same um, in the same production. Uh, I think it's totally wrong. Uh, the, 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 the cap is not functioning as the, and at the European uh, level. 
And I think that it won't function at the uh, African or other countries level. So we have to change this. And for example, when we are speaking about food security, uh, FAO is speaking about fertilizer. I don't agree with this mechanism. I think that we have to promote little farmers in these countries and giving them technology, because it's not a question of leaving them alone, mm. uh, but also giving them new technology to have more uh, efficiency in their, uh, in their farm. But we have to support them more. And the problem in development projects, we are doing it. Of course, I was in Benin, and there are uh, a lot of projects in small agriculture system. But in the same time, we are supporting with Benin these trade agreements with very heavy agriculture uh, farm. And, and these are destroying the other because they, they don't have the same efficiency. And so what I'm asking for is more um, coherence in what we are doing and not doing things that are destroying the development mechanism. Uh, and th this is really difficult sometimes because in Benin we need to have the cotton from Benin. And so we are interested in having big plantation of cotton from Benin. And so we are supporting them in this big plantation. But if we support them in big plantation of cotton, we are not supporting the little farmers for their own sovereignty in the country. And so we have to, have to, 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 to understand that it's not compatible to have both. Yeah, and it's interesting because you also brought up the fact that we take their batteries, but then, you know, as you were saying, we don't um, give the farmers the technology they need to progress and to go forward as well. Exactly. Harlem, you wanted to say something? Yes, because uh, our mission is to help people to survive, recover, and, and regain control of their future. So we are the IRC, a humanitarian organization, but in fact, more and more of our program are also long-term program, and it includes a lot of agricultural programs, for example, contributing to the Great Wall uh, in the Sahel, uh, helping, uh, I was in the uh, Central African Republic where uh, we, we have a program where we help people to grow uh, new cattle uh, so that uh, they can recreate livelihood. We have been speaking about uh, all the, uh, the cattle who died uh, in, in the east of Africa, and there is a lot of question about how to support people to develop new agriculture activities have access to water uh, and uh, regain a real uh, control on their future. And uh, that's right, that uh, at the same time that we have uh, to look at the emergency, and uh, here it's very high, we have also to, to, to work on prevention because as Maya said, all investment in preventive, in long-term uh, kind of action will uh, diminish the costs anyway of uh, supporting people in, in need later and will be very, uh, much more efficient. So, of course, uh, in, in, in countries where there, there is conflict, it's much more complex. That's also one of the reasons why in Baidoa there is roughly one million internally displaced people. It's, it's like an island in a region which is controlled by armed groups and where people go because there's no water elsewhere and it's the only place where they can have humanitarian access. But we have to think of the way we will help these people to regain a real uh, normal uh, economic activity. And it, it, will, it will mean a lot of investment in thinking of the new kind of agriculture and, and, and not an agriculture which is uh, mainly oriented through exportation but which is mainly oriented through uh, uh, people's dignity.
There's a question here that actually feeds into what you were saying. Um, it's from Joy, um, who says that rather than making the drought-stricken countries depend on aid, wouldn't it be more effective to give longer-lasting solutions, for example, investing in seedlings that are drought-resistant wells, flood-resistant structures, supporting innovative ideas like that? Um, perhaps, Andrea, you could take that one. No, no, certainly. I mean, I think that that, uh, that question is spot on. You could uh, take it one step further, uh, urban management. Uh, why do we have a problem in Baidoa uh, on, on top of what, what you saw is because the people who left in 2011 because of the drought of 2011, the people who left in the 2017 drought, those people are still there and they have not been able to graduate out of poverty. Uh, so when this strikes again on top of the old displaced, you have the new displaced who arrive, but the new displaced are of course more destitute, but the old displaced are not in a very nice place either. Uh, so that ability to actually uh, find durable solutions uh, is extremely is extremely important. Water saline, uh, desalination plants, elements like this. But for that, you need to have also a government who is able to put together a development plan, which is a longer term plan, uh, so that also it's a place you know so that investment can come because that requires also private sector investment and so on. So we end we go into a different ball game than the one of an emergency uh, humanitarian response to one that addresses the root causes. Okay, one last question. I'll give it to um, Fozzie. It's from Michelle. Um, Michelle says, do the speakers anticipate or advocate an increase in the use of direct cash transfers to individuals and families as an effective and sustainable means of combating chronic hunger? Fozia? Uh, the, the direct uh, cash transfer is, is something that works for the people. And it also gives them, you know, that, you know, pride that, you know, they don't have to sit somewhere to wait for the food to be delivered, which can also put sometimes them in risk. So, the, but it depends, you know, the, the resources that are available at the time. Uh, we know the need is too big, but the, the funding that comes through is too small. But one thing it's, it, that is proven because of the mobile banking that is available now uh, in, in Somalia, that helps uh, a little bit through this uh, cash transfer. And it gives them you know, now the ability to, to buy uh, the commodities that they need, although the, the, the price inflation also affected them, you know, how much they are able to, to buy uh, to feed their families. What you could have given two years ago that could have helped it for, you know, 20 days, now it's not even enough for 15 days because the price is skyrocketing, access of the food, uh, which is another problem, transportation of those goods, you know, went up because of the fuel price that also went up. So there are a lot to unpack, but well, we are really uh, encouraging the cash transfer so that you know people will 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 be more safer. We don't put them in a harm way. At the same time, they are able to uh, survive and and buy the communities that are mostly in need of them. But that you yeah. there also was um, dignity. Thank you so much. Okay, well, we only have a few minutes left, um, so I'll ask you guys for your final thoughts. And perhaps you could frame it within this final question. If this cycle of drought and famine can't be broken, what is the future going to hold? 
Um, Andrea, please go ahead first. Okay, I'll, I'll maybe start where, where Fawzia left it on this issue of cash transfers. I think it's a very important uh, tool to respond, and I think a balanced humanitarian response is one that combines cash transfers because they give that dignity to, uh, to people, because they also contribute to markets and, and to, to agricultural producers being able to sell their, their, their things. Uh, but it has to also be combined with uh, basic access to services, uh, water, uh, you know, uh, medical assistance and so on, which cannot be bought uh, with cash. That, that service element has to be done. Uh, the way to break the cycle is through, uh, is through development. Um, is through uh, the countries affected developing a vision of where they want to be. Uh, do they want to maintain a, a model uh, of livestock uh, which in parts of the country may no longer be uh, possible? Do they want to give it up? Do they want to find a third way in between? Uh, it has to be an owned decision and an owned orientation uh, in, in those countries to which the international community should just there, be there to, uh, to support. In the immediate emergency, what is very much required is to uh, increase the level of funding that goes to these countries. Um, through you know, donors and you know, if, if the parliament gives us some more money, we will certainly, uh, we will certainly, uh, certainly use it. Uh, but not only through institutional donors, also through the public, through better use of the diaspora money. We haven't spoken about the diaspora, but Somalia has a very strong and vibrant diaspora, trying to get all these energies to be channeled uh, together, and through expanding the donor base within the EU, but also outside the EU. Thank you, uh, Maria Arena. I think that we need to work more and uh, I was really interested in the COP27 on these loss and damages because I think it's really the way we have to think about new solidarities with uh, this climate change and the countries that are really suffering more. It forces change. Uh, exactly. And so it is uh, just to accept that in some case there is, it's too late and so it's important to compensate, to help the transition and to help this country to find a way, because I totally agree with you, uh, they, need, they need to find their way uh, for the future. But we, we, we are responsible for part of it, and so we have to pay uh, for it. So this is really important, and I'm really also interested in the, uh, what, what they will take as, as decision in the G20 uh, on mm. this. So it's a, global, it's a global responsibility that we have to support, and as Europe, we have to be leader on this. Uh, I think it's important because uh, Africa is really our, really our neighbor uh, and, and we, we are responsible for a part of what is um, emerging in Africa. So it's really, we have to be the lead on this. Thank you so much. Um, and Fosia, your final thoughts? Uh, I think you was said enough, but uh, the immediate response is, is, is important. And what I can add is we cannot also forget, we cannot also forget about the development, which is something we, we believe that can break the cycle. And it, it, will, it will be, you know, remembered, you know, when people are supported at the time of need. And even though the, the, the one who helped it may have forgotten, 
the one who is helping is never forgetting. And and uh, this uh, situation and the crisis, yeah, it really needs you know all hands on the deck. There's no one single country that can uh, support all, all the regions that is affected by by the the climate change and and also these other incidents that are always coming back. So I I encourage the European Union to take a bold step and be the leader on this one. Uh, yes, we know the United States is is very you know a big donor on this one, but we we also you know count on on the European Union and 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 because they are wealthy uh, countries and uh, we are hoping that uh, as much as you know. They, they also have to address their citizens' needs, but this is a, a, a their situation that needs, you know, immediate response to you. Thank you so much, Rosia. And final words to Holland. First, thanks to, to all participants and to you, uh, Mariam, for, for this debate. I think climate change, we are all facing it, and we now understand that it's not a crisis for the future. It's already here, and it's a man-made uh, reality. But uh, there are people in some parts of the world who are paying a higher price, and, and it's a life price. And those are the people, especially in uh, uh, the Horn of Africa, in Sahel, in some other places, in Pakistan, we've seen uh, the flooding. And so, I mean, we all have to face it, but we, we have to, to uh, support more those who are most uh, affected now, and we have to, to do it working with the local communities, with internally displaced people, with the host community, to help them to cope with this and, and to, to reconstruct a new, a new uh, model of, uh, of development. Uh, of course, when we are working in uh, places of conflict, we also face impunity of the crimes committed against the civilians. Uh, this is also something very important. We have to combat this impunity, uh, which restrains the access uh, to, to humanitarian aid. Uh, but again, it's... Uh, by uh, first uh, being there in terms of emergency, uh, avoiding a catastrophe. We are really on, at the verge of a catastrophe in this region. And then working with the community about prevention, because we have successes uh, drought, so we could see that this will arrive, and we see that these droughts, the droughts of now, will have consequences uh, for the next harvest and, and, and so for the next year. So we have to, to work now on preventing and on helping this community to cope with this new reality. Thank you so much. Um, and I think def definitely this was a much needed debate. Um, thank you to all of you. Thank you, Fozzie, as well, joining us online um, for giving all of your sort of insights into what is actually happening on the ground and the kind of support that can be given. Um, I hope everyone watching in the room, everyone watching online has enjoyed or at least you know, understood the realities that are, of course, being faced on the ground. I'm Mariam Zaidi, watching your active debate, supported by the IC. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>